Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Muslim South Asia is widely characterized as a culture that idealizes female anonymity. Women's bodies are veiled and their voices silenced. Challenging these perceptions, Siobhan Lambert Hurley highlights an elusive strand of autobiographical writing dating back several centuries that offers a new lens through which to study notions of selfhood. In Elusive Lives, Gender, Autobiography, and the Self in Muslim South Asia, published with Stanford University Press. She locates the voices of Muslim women who rejected taboos against women speaking out by telling their life stories in written autobiography. To chart patterns across time and space, materials dated from the 16th century to the present are drawn from across South Asia, including present-day India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Lambert Hurley uses many rare autobiographical texts in a wide array of languages, to elaborate a theoretical model for gender, autobiography, and the self beyond the usual Euro-American frame. In doing so, she works toward a new globalized history of the field. Ultimately, Elusive Lives points to the sheer diversity of Muslim women's lives and life stories, offering a unique window into a history of the everyday against a backdrop of imperialism, reformism, nationalism, and feminism. In our conversation, we discuss autobiographical writing, travelogues, letters, diaries, interviews, low literacy rates, the social and physical geographies of authors, reasons Muslim women narrate their lives, the role of editors, translators, and publishers, intended and unintended audiences, the actress Begum Kurshid Mirza, and gender differences across autobiographies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, here's my conversation with Siobhan Lambert-Hurley on elusive lives, gender, autobiography, and the self in Muslim South Asia. Welcome, Siobhan. Thank you for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks so much for inviting me to participate today. Yeah, I'm excited about your your book, Elusive Lives. It was uh, great to read and, you know, both kind of thorough and engaging, but also um, just really fun to read it at, at many parts, <laughs> very enjoyable. Um, but before we get into the book, uh, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about uh, your background and what brought you to the study of South Asia, the, the study of Muslims. Uh, were there moments or mentors in your life? Uh, that kind of shaped the way you approach your topic today? Thanks for that question. Um, I, uh, I'll start actually with a story that is, has been uh, oft told over many years, which is, uh, so I grew up in, in Western Canada. Uh, I was born in, on Vancouver Island and uh, about as far as you could probably get from, from India and, and my subject of study now um, And when I was a girl, I was about uh, nine years old, we did a project at school whereby we were studying countries of the world. And uh, I had an opportunity to to get a a pen friend somewhere else in the world. And uh, my own family, as my name perhaps suggests, um, were from Ireland originally. And I thought it would be really fun to find out about my, uh, my presumed heritage in Ireland. So I asked for, a, for an Irish pen friend and uh, my letter ended up in the wrong eye pile and I ended up with India instead. Uh, so it was very um, kind of, uh, yeah, serendipitous, I suppose. Um, and I was given the opportunity to write to a, a girl in Kolkata um, or Calcutta as it still was then. And we continued our um, correspondence right up until I went to to university um, like a decade later. Um, And because of that long correspondence, I really had an interest when I went to university to 
um, yeah, to study something to do with this place where my pen friend came from and uh, thus took a few courses as part of a kind of general degree in history and politics at the University of British Columbia. Um, and, and really my interest was piqued. Um, so I, I became especially interested um, in South Asian history, but uh, my undergraduate degree, and I think this is kind of pertinent to this book, my undergraduate degree is actually in South Asian studies. Um, so I had the opportunity as an undergraduate student to uh, study not just history, but also uh, politics and language and anthropology and, of course, literature, which is the subject of this book. Um, and it was also during that time that I really began to kind of gain a fascination with uh, South Asia's Muslim communities, especially. Um, so I often found, you know, when I was doing my reading for my courses as an undergraduate, that there was an awful lot of things that focused on the majority communities within South Asia, but less that looked particularly at uh, women's movements amongst Muslims and the like. So when I ultimately went on to do my uh, PhD studies, which I did at the School, in Orient, School of Oriental and African Studies in London, um, I decided I wanted to do something that highlighted the, the histories of that group that seemed so unrepresented in the historical literature at that time. And that's how I came, came to uh, work particularly on the histories of Muslim women. Um, and actually, I think what you probably see in my career since that time is, is that that kind of that roots in South Asian studies has come out in lots of ways. Um, most of what I've done over the years has really focused on the kind of historicizing of, of different types of literary genres. So uh, my, my first book looked at uh, socio-reformist literature, um, of course, I've moved on in this one to look at autobiography. And more recently, I've been looking at uh, travel and food literatures as well. So, um, yeah, I think you can see the roots of, of my past in, in marked on this book. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, where the the kind of kernel for this book started um you know when did you start to think about well i'm familiar with all this literature and i'm i'm finding all these kind of autobiographical narratives across these various types of texts um i think i can synthesize this in in, in a kind of productive way when, when did this kind of emerge as a as a book in your mind for you yeah so um i mentioned already that um my phd work that ultimately became my uh, my first book uh, was looking at socio-religious reform movements, and it was focused specifically on the state of Bhopal in central India, which was a, a so-called princely state during the colonial period. And what was very distinctive about that state was that it was actually ruled by a dynasty of Muslim female rulers right from the 19th century, early 19th century, up until the early 20th century. Um, and in my, uh, my research for that book, I was interested particularly in the last of those uh, Muslim female rulers, a woman called Nawab Sultan Jahan Begum of Bhopal. Um, she ruled the state from 1901 through to 1926. And uh, she was very much at the kind of uh, focus of uh, a women's socio-religious reform movement. So she brought together lots of different women within her state who were interested in kind of reforming women's education, reforming women's health initiatives, uh, reforming women's bailing practices and the like. Um, so it was within that context uh, that I obviously started looking in detail at women's writings, but what was also distinctive about that family was that they produced um, a, a large number of autobiographical and travel narratives. So I had those kind of as resources um, for that first book. And I was interested in those texts as, uh, as, as documentary sources, I suppose. Um, but as I was kind of reading those texts, I, I kind of thought that there was more that could be done with them, I suppose. Um, I became interested in how those uh, those autobiographical and travel texts could be um, uh, read to kind of chart changing notions of, of, of the self, I suppose, within the period that I was looking at. So I kind of 
I started with this kind of kernel of, of sources, this, this body of sources from Bhopal. Um, and I started to think, I'm, I'm sure I must be able to find more material like this elsewhere. Um, I mean, you suggested that I kind of started with this, this large body of material, which actually I didn't at all. I, I kind of started with a hunch, I suppose. Um, you know, I had these texts from Bhopal and I had a hunch that there must be more. Um, but actually, even when I, I sort of set out um, to do my uh, research in India uh, for, for, for the first time on this project, I was still kind of thinking, oh, God, am I going to find anything at all? <laughs> or maybe, <laughs> maybe these texts um, aren't there to be found. Um, of course, in time, I was, I was overwhelmed by, my, by, my, by how much material I came across. So um, my hunch actually played out, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you pursued it because, uh, yeah, it's a it's a great book. Um, and one of the things that I really liked about it, um, you know, literature isn't my field, but I've read a number of books and often uh, the kind of approach is let's look at, you know, one or two texts that do similar things and then, you know, move on to, you know, another text. Um, and part of what was really great about yours is you 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 do look at these numerous sources um, that go across all sorts of different genres. Um, so could you you talk a little bit about um, the types of narratives and texts you ended up selecting, and then um, in thinking about south asian muslim women as a category or as a group of categories um how did that factor into thinking about these texts yeah absolutely um you know i kind of indicated already that when i started this project i i really wasn't sure what i was out there what was out there to be found but i also wasn't quite sure what i was looking for either um you know i think i sort of started with this kind of inherited notion and very generalized notion probably as well of, of what autobiography was or as I came to define it autobiographical writing um, and even you know I, I'm quite conscious especially in the first chapter of the book about kind of narrating the process and the thinking processes and I, I did that very consciously because I wanted to show that you know as historians we don't we don't start with all the answers, I suppose. We start um, and we, we think through and to show that, you know, this kind of uh, gaining of historical knowledge is a process, I suppose. Um, so in that first chapter, I really seek to kind of narrate how I started with this kind of amorphous idea of what I was looking for. And I slowly narrowed in on it through the, through the process of, of doing the research. Um, so, you know, first of all, I thought, okay, I mean, in the context of Bhopal, um, where, I, where I started, I had what were pretty well, you know, I think would, would fit with our kind of notion of what autobiography or memoir was. And then I also had this body of travel narratives. But when I started looking elsewhere, um, I started to come across kind of uh, a much uh, wider type of source material. Um, so I... Uh, you know, very often when I would ask people if they had uh, sources that they could share with me, they would share maybe something we would define more as an autobiographical fragment. So a kind of account of a certain period in somebody's life. Uh, sometimes people handed over to me novels or, or pieces of poetry. Sometimes they would give me something like an interview, either in a recorded form or in a, a written down form where it had been you know, transcribed onto the page. Um, so I started kind of coming across this really wide array of materials. I had one experience um, in Delhi where I, uh, I was speaking to a, a fellow researcher and she said, oh, I'm working with a family up in North Delhi. Um, they, have, they, have a, um, they have an autobiography that you might be interested in. And when I, I got there, uh, what I was handed over was um, about 50 years worth of letters that had been written between um, a male member of the family and a female member of the family who had um, migrated to Pakistan in 1947 at, at the time of partition. And I was kind of 
confronted with this, you know, boxes and boxes of these letters. And I kind of looked at them and thought, well, is this autobiography? Um, so there was this real kind of conscious process of kind of thinking about what that term meant and what that term meant specifically in South Asia, particularly amongst the subject group I was looking at, that group of, of, of South Asian Muslim women. Um, ultimately, as, as you'll know from reading the book, I settled on quite a kind of uh, capacious <laughs> definition, I think. Um, I settled on the constructed life as it was written down. So as I, I noted already, I focused on autobiographical writing and I chose that very specifically. Um, I chose that partly because it allowed me to uh, broaden out what I included within my study. It allowed me to bring in the autobiographical fragments, the travel narratives, um, the edited uh, uh, letters and edited diary books. Um, but it also allowed me, I think, by, by maintaining the word autobiography to link this set of literature that I was finding in South Asia to a kind of a global study uh, of autobiography. So many scholars in South Asia have, have not felt at ease with the term autobiography. They felt that it's a, a Western uh, creation, a Western notion, um, and, and thus they've sought to use other kind of broader terms, things like personal narratives um, or other, other terms of that sort. Um, but I really wanted to take the material that I was using from South Asia and engage, I think, with that debate over, over autobiography as a kind of global field. Um, and thus I, I kind of consciously used the term, uh, or at least a version of the term um, autobiography in terms of the sources that I was looking at. Um, to go back to your original question, which was uh, kind of asking me about using these multiple sources, I was really uh, conscious when I looked at the historiography that um, just what you're saying, you know, much of the work that has been done on autobiographies, um, not just in South Asia, elsewhere as well, often focuses on individual texts and uh, sort of, you know, really uh, pulls those texts apart. But I guess what I was interested to do in this book was, I hope, kind of move beyond the individual texts um, and instead look at a whole set of texts so that I could really trace patterns across time and space. And I felt like it was only if I could kind of get a, a broader set of materials that I could start to think about um, the questions that I seek to answer in this book, which are, um, uh, yeah, you'll know that each chapter is, is framed by a question. Um, I've suggested already that I, I start with what, I then move on to who, and then where, and then how, and then why. Um, and as a historian, I, I hopefully weave when throughout all of those chapters. Yeah, I thought that was also, um, I guess, implicit in my comparison, but uh, a useful way of framing it and really kind of synthesizing a lot of this uh, as opposed to doing um, just the kind of singular reading. Mm. Um, so as you move on and thinking about who is writing these autobiographical narratives, um, you you first kind of tackle the uh, what you call a literacy conundrum. Um, yeah. So can, can you talk a little bit about how low literacy rates uh, among South Asian women affected who gets to write autobiographies? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so literacy um, has been very low amongst the group that I'm looking at right throughout, um, throughout history and, and, and indeed up into the, uh, into the contemporary context as well. Um, it's quite difficult to pin down exact figures uh, for literacy, um, certainly before the colonial period. Um, but we can uh, kind of get a sense of it um, once we start having you know, statistics in the census and that um, from, from, that were produced during the, uh, the period of the colonial state. Um, and uh, yeah, we know that um, you know, at the start of the 20th century, we're looking at you know, uh, literally <laughs> less, than, less than 2% of Muslim women who have the skills of reading and writing. And even by 
independents were looking at, you know, less than 10%. Um, so yeah, the, the literacy conundrum is that um, I wanted to look at a, uh, a type of literary genre, but one that could only be produced by, by a very small number of women in that society. However, as I seek to point out, actually um, to, to prepare, I'll say prepare rather than, rather than write an autobiography, um, what I found was that you needn't have literacy actually. Um, and this was particularly because in a number of contexts that I was looking at, there was a, a tradition of, of dictating to a scribe or something of that sort. So on one hand, I was kind of interested in the growth of literacy and how this enabled more women to write about their lives. On the other hand, I was also capturing that um, you could still have a kind of autobiographical piece, even if, if, um, even if literacy wasn't there, I guess, yeah. Mm -hmm. You also, um, in this, this chapter on who gets to write autobiographies, um, kind of offer, I guess, some typologies, um, so to speak, um, thinking about how things like class and education and occupation uh, shape the 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 uh, um, authors of these. So, um, yeah. how do these factors, um, you know, uh, structure who has access to autobi autobiographical writings, um, and uh, why why did these authors uh, end up sharing their life? What was kind of the moments that? Uh, or the, the, the impetus to, to, for them to kind of narrate their lives? Yeah, so in that chapter, as you say, I'm, I'm interested, I was interested in thinking about who writes and if there was, um, you know, particular categories that we could identify that enable, enabled us to see um, who, who wrote in kind of broad terms. Um, it's, it's perhaps not surprising as from what we've talked about already that it was mostly the elite and the educated um, who, who did write. Um, though, though there are um, exceptions to that rule as I probably indicated already. So uh, sometimes less elite women would uh, narrate their stories to, to others who would write them down for them. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm making a generalization here but also pointing out that there are exceptions to the rule um, so uh, one of the things that I'm really interested in in this book is the kind of linkages that we find between uh, between women, uh, between socio-religious reform movements, uh, which were emerging in South Asia from the uh, from the 19th century, um, and also autobiography. So how autobiography, I guess, became a kind of vehicle for different groups within society to um, uh, make assertions about their identities and particular, particularly make assertions about um, their place within a social hierarchy. Um, so uh, what I found initially, you know, kind of talking, you, you mentioned that I'm interested in, in class in the broadest kind of possible terms. Um, and what became quite obvious was that Originally, a number of women who wrote uh, belonged to what we might call courtly, courtly uh, classes, so belonged to um, perhaps the princely states that I referred to earlier. And of course, that's where I started. I started with women uh, of the Bhopal court who were writing about their, their lives. Um, and, and what was quite interesting, I think, is, is this kind of pointed to me to the fact that um, these, these princely classes were um, undergoing uh, a process of being um, stripped, I suppose, of their kind of nobility in the period that we're looking at. So the late 19th century was seeing the emergence of, kind of new middle-class groups amongst Muslims in a colonial context. And as those new middle-class groups wanted to kind of claim nobility, they were redefining what it meant to be noble in a way that it, it no longer applied in a way to the, the traditional noble groups within that society. So I think we can see the way in which on one hand, autobiography is being used by the kind of traditional nobility, the courtly classes to, to say, hey, um, we still have a claim if you like on, uh, on, on nobility. 
Um, and then it was being used at the same time by these new middle classes to, um, to assert their claims on, on uh, a sense of nobility, or as we'd say in, in South Asia, Sharifness um, or, or Ashraf status. So they're trying to, to claim that as well. Um, and autobiography kind of becomes the vehicle for that. So I think the fact that we see these kind of linkages between certain groups who are, are writing um, autobiography and that is, is very much a kind of reflection of, of social changes that are happening within South Asian uh, society at the time. Um, part of those socio-religious reform movements that I was just speaking about too was to, uh, to encourage the spread of education um, amongst women, and it's certainly in the uh, early 20th century that we see the, the growth of schools for Muslim girls in particular in South Asia. Um, and so in a way, again, it's not surprising, I suppose, that, um, that it is those educated uh, women who are writing because they're charting uh, a change within society. They're charting uh, this growth of education that enabled them to go to school and ultimately enables them to, to write as well. Um, and, and once they had literacy, that enabled um, many uh, women to, to go into all sorts of new fields that they wouldn't have necessarily um, had access to before either. So uh, many of those girls having gone to school, that have been, been the first generation sometimes of girls to go to school, um, often use their education, not necessarily for what uh, Muslim reformers thought it would be for, which was to become good wives and mothers, but instead went on to, um, to uh, you know, go into different occupations and hence uh, the kind of third category that I look at in this chapter is, is looking at occupations. Um, and, and what I find is that, uh, of course, many of the authors of autobiographical texts um, had very particular occupations. So we see, as I've indicated already, lots of women associated with courts, so courtly women, um, also lots of educationalists, uh, which also kind of reflects what I was talking about. And then also women that uh, go into other uh, occupations too. So writers, uh, politicians and performers. Um, so yeah, we often get these women who are elite and educated and taking up occupations for the first time. Um, and I think ultimately then they write autobiography because they want to chart the exceptional uh, changes the exceptional experiences that they have had often as the kind of first generation of women going into those uh, into those fields. You move on to uh, thinking about where uh, autobiography is happening and um, you, you also take this in a very kind of expansive way which I think uh, worked you know, thinking about things like region and, and physical space, but also things like, um, you know, language choices, religious affiliation, um, also, uh, you know, cityscapes and how that shapes autobiography. So uh, how, how do the intersections of these social and, and physical geographies shape uh, how Muslim women narrate their life? Yeah, I was really... Um, when I started that chapter, I kind of started by thinking about, you know, just physically, which regions um, do, we, do we find these? And could I kind of map, if you like, the text that I had um, onto, onto a map of, of South Asia? Um, and, and I did, you know, I do start by doing a little bit of that and highlighting, you know, particular regions uh, where there is um, more autobiographies than we find elsewhere. Um, and also, you know, even parts of, of cities, for instance, where um, more autobiographies emerge. So one of the case studies I look at in that chapter is, is the city of Delhi. Um, and as you rightly point out, I do kind of flag how cities become um, a kind of a location to, to facilitate autobiographical expression. Um, uh, so a, a place where more autobiographies emerge and where they kind of offer this kind of cultural leadership, I suppose, to, to the rest of the country. But I found that, you know, even within cities, there was certain areas where I would find lots of autobiographies by women and others where I would find, find less. Um, so within the context of Delhi, for instance, I spent a very long time um, in an area called Nizamuddin, uh, which is uh, 
around a very famous uh, Sufi shrine. And um, I spent a lot of time with families in that area. And I, I was convinced that there must be um, some kind of autobiographies to emerge from that. Um, and, and I just simply couldn't find anything. Um, on the other hand, um, when I went to certain areas like uh, Jamia Nagar, um, uh, which uh, you know, surrounds a university area in Delhi, um, uh, the, the University of Jamia Millia Islamia, um, I just, every day I was being taken from one family to another um, and, and, uh, and being shown. So I think in a way we can see through the autobiographical map, as I call it, how many of the kind of social characteristics that I, I look at in, the, in that second chapter kind of were reflected in the map as well. So, you know, I was talking about how many educationalists wrote, and of course, unsurprisingly, therefore, that we find an area around a university as being an area that was more uh, likely to, um, to, to show autobiographical expression. Um, yeah, I also, as you say, try and kind of expand what I mean by geography um, and, and look at other factors too. So look at the Im uh, impact of sect, for instance. Um, one thing that I, I'm really keen to, to trace in the book is how um, certain smaller sects um, within Islam in South Asia, um, so groups like the Suleiman Bora community within uh, Bombay, for instance, again, kind of used autobiography as a way of articulating their, their distinct community identity. So we end up with far more texts from some of these um, smaller sects than we do from, from, from other groups, for instance. Um, and then also, uh, as you say, just kind of thinking more broadly about questions of language and audience. Um, so thinking about how... Um, if, if women were writing in different areas of South Asia, um, that that uh, local or regional or national context shaped uh, the way they wrote, the language in which they wrote, and the, the kind of considerations, I suppose, um, that uh, in, in, in shape, shaped the considerations of, of what they wanted to include within their text and what they wanted to include in terms of, of how they constructed their life. You also uh, touch upon audience in this, this chapter. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how intended or unintended readership uh, shape how Muslim women crafted their, their autobiographical output? Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, this is something I'm really interested in in the book. Um, in that I think, you know, when people read autobiography, they see it as an expression of, of self um, and they see it as um, a, a kind of narration of the self, I suppose. Um, and what I was interested, uh, especially, was actually um, how that self was, was crafted kind of in relationship to another. So in relationship to the reader itself, um, so that actually it's, it's the context and the readership almost that can craft a narrative as much as the individual author, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I really was interested in the impact of, of audience. And what's, uh, what was really clear to me in, in looking at the kind of wide range of materials that I did is that they all had very different audiences. You know, some of the texts that I looked at were, were quite consciously written for, for maybe a, a singular audience. So um, uh, one text that I looked at was a memoir written by a woman called uh, Safiya Jabir Ali who, uh, from Bombay. And she started writing down her life story um, primarily to be read by her son. So she wanted her son to have a kind of record of the, uh, the challenges and experiences that she and her husband had, um, first of all, as they set up a, a farm, and also as they became involved in the nationalist movement in India in the early part of the 20th century. Um, so, so we go from an audience of one um, up, into, up, up to books, of course, that were um, published you know, uh, with big presses with the intention of being read kind of far and, and wide. And then of course we've got everything in between. Um, so some of these texts were um, uh, written very consciously for kind of extended family audiences. 
Um, so certain Muslim families um, uh, or khandans uh, or clans had um, would keep um, maybe family journals and the like where, where women would contribute their writings. Um, and, you know, you asked about kind of the impact of audience on, on the crafting of these stories. You can imagine if you're... Um, uh, who you're writing for is going to really shape um, what you write and also what you leave out as well. So for many of these women, um, when they were writing maybe for a family audience, um, there was a lot of um, assumed knowledge because they shared the same kind of cultural milieu. So a lot of things they just kind of left out because they, they knew their audience would, would know the context in which they were talking about. Um, and then they also would consciously leave things out um, because maybe they didn't want uh, to, to feel that that was, you know, they didn't feel that was information that was appropriate to share maybe with elders in the family or, or the like. Um, so, uh, yeah, depending on the audience, we see um, very different kinds of materials. Um, one thing I was, I'm also interested in is how uh, particularly... Um, these Muslim women that I'm focusing on, they, they very often have a consciousness of writing for women like themselves. So very often they, they wrote for other women who were also perhaps living quite segregated lives. Um, and because they were writing as they saw it for other women, they often um, shared aspects of their lives that they would, thought was kind of appropriate for that or feel female milieu in a way. Um, so one thing that's quite you know, revealing, which I um, touch on on the book and I've, I've written about elsewhere as, as well, is that very often these women are very um, forthcoming to talk about sexuality and intimacy within their lives um, because they felt that this was you know, an appropriate topic that they could discuss with other women. Um, and it's only women who feel like they're writing uh, maybe through a press for a more mixed audience um, that they that they don't talk about these kinds of subjects um, because they don't think it's appropriate to be um, to perhaps be engaged with by a male audience. So um, very interesting, I think, about how people imagined their audiences and therefore how they crafted their writing to to fit with who they imagined that audience to be. Mm. Yeah, you pick up this dynamic uh, well. Um, you, you in, in the following chapter, you look at uh, the, the how, and there you kind of uh, zoom in on the processes of production and, and how that might affect autobiographical practice. So um, what, what interests might editors, translators, publishers have in autobiographies, and then how might that uh, affect the framing of the subject's narrative? Yeah, so I mean, I, I talked about already, didn't I, how um, I, I'm trying to kind of show in this book how, you know, autobiography isn't just a narration of the self, it's also um, a self that um, is expressed through engagement with others, um, that other might be the audience, as I've just talked about, but that other might also be all these other kind of players who help construct a, an autobiography. Um, so um, in that chapter that you've just referred to, um, I look at what I think is a really fascinating case study. Um, I, I was given access um, to four iterations of the autobiography of one woman, a, a woman called Begum Khurshid Mirza. Um, and I was given um, not only her original manuscript, but also a version that was published in um, in a local journal and then two uh, later book editions and all four editions of these um, of her life were, were subtly different. Um, and that gave me really a chance to kind of unpick um, this, uh, yeah, the, the, the uh, impact of all these players as I kind of refer to them, the, the impact of publishers, the impact of editors, the impact of ghost writers and family members who are writing things in the background um, and, the, and the impact of, of you know, designers and publishers as well. Um, so to show how that's, how that's been crafted. 
Um, you, you, you note about the kind of interest of, of publishers in these texts. Um, I think one thing that's really we've seen in, in the kind of later part of the 20th century and certainly into the 21st century is that autobiography is very often seen as a kind of appropriate mode for women and especially Muslim women to, to write in. Um, so we can see, you know, one of the things that um, I kind of came across as I was writing this was the way in which some of the women who wrote autobiographical texts hadn't wanted to write an autobiographical text initially. They had intended to write a kind of, uh, you know, maybe a, a political study of, of a place or a, a period, um, but they were often kind of encouraged or pushed by publishers to, to take on a kind of more autobiographical mode um, and to tell their, their story in that way. Um, so I think that's quite interesting because it sort of shows how um, autobiography as a, a sort of set um, or a, a group of texts is actually being kind of um, crafted, I suppose, by the expectations of, of the publishing industry. And I think that's a point, you know, I, I've drawn it out in the context of the contemporary, but I think that's uh, was equally true um, in, in the kind of late 19th and early 20th century too. Um, there were sort of expectations of what an autobiography should look like, particularly if it was by a, a Muslim woman, and therefore the, the kind of editing process almost um, uh, encouraged those texts to fit within, uh, within uh, a kind of mode of writing or a, a, set, of, a set of texts. Um, the last uh, full chapter that you have um, is really, really engaging. This this would work great for folks if they needed something to, to add to a course um, as a standalone chapter. But um, there you kind of um, basically take like a case study to examine uh, this idea that there is some the gender difference in autobiography. Um which the, I found this chapter really fascinating. So can, can you kind of walk us through what this case study is, the, the kind of various uh, sources you had uh, at your disposal and then what you found in relation to this idea of gender difference? Yeah, so I think this might be my favorite chapter too, actually. Um, I really, um, I, I, I was, I, I loved writing this chapter and I, I really think in some ways um, the other chapters in the book are all kind of almost leading up to, to this one, um, kind of laying the ground for, for what, you know, for this chapter, which I think really gets kind of at the heart of what I wanted to do in this book, which, as you said, is to, to gender autobiography, to sort of think about the gender differences within autobiography, but also to historicize it. Um, so to, to show um, not just how men and women are writing differently, but also how that balance is, is changing, I suppose, over time. And I guess that's, that's the contribution that I make as a historian to, to, studying, to studying literature in particular. Um, so yeah, in this chapter, I um, focus on one particular family or uh, khandan or clan um, within um, the South Asian Muslim community. And it's a family... Um, which is known, usually known as the Payabji clan. Um, they belonged, as I was sort of pointing out before, to a, a particular sect uh, within Bombay called the Suleimani Bora community. And um, that makes them um, quite unique and quite exceptional in some ways. Um, but I, I felt like that was okay in this chapter because actually what I wanted to do was to make sure I kind of had a case study that was operating within a kind of um, fixed cultural milieu in a way. So the fact that they were a little bit set apart, they were a little bit different and exceptional, uh, kind of worked for what I wanted to do here. So um, I, I mentioned already that in the first chapter, I kind of talk about the process by which I, I do this research. And, um, and this was research that, you know, I didn't I didn't just kind of go to an archive and sit down and find all the books I was looking for um, in the way that maybe we idealize what we do as historians. Um, rather, um, I talk about in that first chapter how I used the, the home, the market, the street as my archive um, and how many of the sources I, I use in this book um, came from private collections. They came from 
individual families who were generous enough to, to share their family's writings with me. And one family who were particularly forthcoming um, were indeed the, the Tayabji clan. Um, so I, I met one member of the family in uh, Delhi and she shared some materials with me. And then she sent me to another member of the family in Bombay who shared a few more things with me. And they sent me to another member of the family who said, uh, shared still more things. And, and so the process kind of continued. Um, and what I found by the end of that research process was that I had this amazing set of autobiographical writings. And I, again, use that in a very broad term, as a very broad term to include a number of different types of texts. Um, but I had a set of materials that were written both by men and women within the family. Um, and they dated right from the late 19th century, right up to the, to the present day. Um, so it really offered me a, a kind of chance uh, to think, okay, I've got this set of materials all from one family, all from kind of within a shared cultural milieu. What did they tell us about how um, men and women write um, and how, they, how, that, how autobiography is evolving as a literary genre within, within the modern period? Um, and that really offered me an opportunity, I think, to take some of those, um, uh, I guess, kind of theoretical frames that had been evolved in other contexts, particularly kind of Euro-American contexts, where um, very often a, a so-called difference model has been um, evolved. So to suggest that men and women write very differently and to kind of apply that to the South Asian context um, and apply it in a way that I could both um, challenge it and also hopefully extend it. So to, to, to develop a kind of new model, I hope, um, uh, to, that would also um, apply um, to, to the South Asian Muslim case. Um, and what came out very strongly is that, yeah, it, the difference model just didn't work <laughs> or it didn't work in the way that maybe um, people might expect it to um, once I was looking at this kind of case study of the Tayabji clan. Um, I mean, I found, you know, one of the things that has been posited by the, the difference model, and I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing in a very sim simple way here, but, you know, it's been pointed out that women write about the domestic while men write about the public. Um, in fact, what I found by kind of comparing these texts over a long period is that, yes, women did write about the domestic, and perhaps that was unsurprising because their world was framed by the domestic environment. Um, but the men in the family were just as, as likely to talk about their families and their, um, and their personal relationships and that as well. So there was a lot of kind of crossover in, in these terms. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of go on, go on from there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a lot in the book, and obviously we didn't get to cover anything, but is, is there anything um, you wanted to discuss before we wrap things up? Um, yeah, I guess maybe one last thing I just wanted to kind of highlight is that, um, you know, I think there's been this kind of uh, assumption for a long time that autobiography um, is very much something that is identified with, with the West, um, and, you know, in a lot of the kind of literature that you see, you know, I mean, this was much more a feature of the late 19th and early 20th century, but it, the, the implication kind of still finds its way, I think, into to kind of more uh, recent theoretical writing, too, is that, um, yeah, the, the autobiography belongs to the West. <laughs> and, and I hope this book will really kind of challenge that portrayal. Um, by showing that, you know, that, that we have these really um, amazing and fascinating texts um, in, that are written by South Asian Muslim women. And I think, I hope too, that it will challenge many of the kind of um, uh, preconceptions that people have of, of South Asian Muslim women too, as, as being kind of silenced and secluded. Because here we have uh, a source that enables us to kind of get beyond those preconceptions and really see um, my subjects as, as the um, yeah, varied and colorful um, uh, people that they were. That's great. Now, um, 
we'd love to hear more about uh, the things you've been working on since the book and um, perhaps some uh, something we can look forward to that might be coming out uh, in the near future. Well, thank you for giving me that opportunity. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to say that a kind of next project after this book was actually a, a much bigger collaborative project that I did um, with two other uh, scholars, uh, Daniel Nakovitz and Sunil Sharma, um, which took kind of one set of the materials that I was looking at here and explored it in much more detail. So, um, so I've been working on a project since this book, which looks particularly at travel writing um, by Muslim women. And it doesn't focus uh, just on South Asia. It also looks at other areas of the Muslim world too. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it's about historicizing the literary genre. It's, it's about looking at how um, travelogues have uh, emerged and changed um, from uh, about the 16th century up to the present right across the Muslim world. Um, and that uh, collection, which includes um, a lot of translations as well from, from different languages is just about to come out as, as another book, um, which is called uh, Three Centuries of Travel Writing by Muslim Women. That'll be out with uh, Indiana University Press in 2022. Um, and since then, I'm also um, working on a new project, um, which again is kind of a, a spin-off, I suppose, of this book. Um, one thing that uh, really came true to me when I was uh, working on this, on these autobiographical materials is how women spent an awful lot of time writing about food. Um, and I became very interested in um, how they were charting kind of changes in terms of eating and food etiquette in the, in the modern period. Um, so currently I'm working on uh, a new project, which uh, yeah, looks particularly at that eating and etiquette in Muslim South Asia. Wow. Well, congrats on the, the forthcoming book and, and good luck on the next one. Sounds like a, a yummy project to, to work on and probably <laughs> makes you want to eat a lot of food while you're writing it. So Absolutely. <laughs> Well, thanks again for, for making the time to talk about this wonderful book and uh, good luck on the next one. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Siobhan Lambert Hurley on her book, Elusive Lives, Gender, Autobiography, and the Self in Muslim South Asia, published with Stanford University Press in 2018. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.